Hello, and welcome to Council's Table. This is a LawCast, and I'm your host, Spencer O'Neill. I created this podcast to explore the people that make up court, and the focus being on people that may find themselves at Council's Table. This includes attorneys and clients. I expect there will be focused discussion with other attorneys on issues they find interesting. Some topics will be modern, some topics may be in the weeds. Mostly, I intend to expose our listeners to my guests as not only people in the system, but as humans. Finally, I intend to have some fun. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and like the content on whichever platform you are using. Hello, this is Spencer O'Neill, and welcome to Council's Table. Today I have with me uh, one of my best friends in the world. His name is Robert Clark. Introduce yourself, sir. I think you just did, but like uh, like everyone just heard, I am Robert Clark. I practice here in Florida. I am admitted to practice in New York and Massachusetts, and I moved my practice down here about a year and a half ago. All right, so you're pra- you barred in three states? I am. Okay. And uh, where'd you go to school? I went to Syracuse, uh, Syracuse College of Law in Syracuse, New York. Oh, you mean the same place that I went to? Oh, well, yes. I think I think we ran into each other there. Oh, I think so. Yeah, maybe. You play golf? I dabble. Yeah, you dabble in golf. I do. Uh, you ever played? I, we played together, right? Once or twice. Oh, oh okay. I think we had another guy that went there too. Who is that? Oh yeah, Joe Biden. Mr. Biden did go there. Oh yeah, our most famed alum. He was my uh, my commencement speaker. He was your commencement speaker. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't go to our commencement. He wanted nothing to do with you. No, I, I think they invite him every year, and then he goes like once every five or some something. I don't know. It's something like that. Yeah. I also think he may have had a granddaughter that was graduating that year, so it worked into his schedule. Oh, I figured you were just graduating during the election year, so he was, was going to get some pub. He didn't run that year. No, he didn't. That was 2016. No, no, he was on his way out. Oh, he could show up for yours because he wasn't vice president anymore. Yeah, he showed up with a small army with snipers on the rooftops and everything. There there were snipers on the rooftops? There were. There were snipers on the rooftops. They were all on, like, top of College of Law and the dorms that uh, surround the the carrier dome. They were all over the place. Was the commencement in the carrier dome? It was. Was it hot? It was. Yeah. (laughs) It's always warm that day. Yeah. our commencement was also in the Carrier Dome, and as you know, you were there. Uh, and you would think that a place that is named with like the corporate name of an air conditioning company would, I don't know, have air conditioning. It makes too much sense. Yeah, I can't do it that way. But no, 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 no. It's there's no air conditioning, and that thing was like 95 degrees inside. It was wild. They've they've redone it since. I think they may have increased <laughs> the comfort and the atmosphere, but I haven't been in it. Yeah, I haven't been in it. I saw they put a. Uh, Almost like a, essentially a crown on top of it. Yeah, because they got rid of the air dome mm-hmm. that was just held up by keeping positive pressure inside the dome, which unto itself just sounds mechanically and engineer like an engineering nightmare. But so they said, okay, we're going to do with that. We're going to put the crown on there, and then we're going to hold this whole dome from it. You know, if they didn't play basketball inside, it'd be cool if they had just taken the top off and like let the elements in. It's an idea. Right. One of my neighbors was actually the manager of it, and 
for I guess for, for quite a while it was the largest arena in America I don't know if it's still that way and it was arena because it could be converted into so many different things yeah so it had that classification rather than being a stadium that's that's the most I know about it but okay he was in charge of all the the turnovers from the lacrosse field to the football field to the basketball court and everything else that went in there monster jam yes monster jam <laughs> I saw a monster jam in there, and the, as stated earlier, there was no ventilation, right? So, but at halftime, they brought in these, like, golf carts with jet engines on them and just burned jet fuel for, like, ten minutes. Half the uh, arena left. The other half were extremely intoxicated on jet fumes. Just pure carcinogens going Oh, yeah, it systems. was wild. It was, it was wild. If you've never huffed gas before, then go to a monster jam in the arena. And, high octane. Yeah, you can get high octane, exactly. All right, so uh, you're here in Florida now, right? I, I am. And uh, like myself, you're a practicing public defender? I am. Okay. So there was, uh, I have with me here a legal bulletin, which actually you provided, from the Miami-Dade Police Department <clears throat> concerning a change in the law we have coming up, kind of a big one. The uh, I believe it's June 1st, right? Is it June 1st? Um, I think that's right. I think that's when it goes into effect. Yeah. So essentially, we've gone, or we're going to, constitutional carry. So, constitutional carry, you know, from my limited understanding at this point, since it's not the law yet, is essentially you have the right to carry a firearm as long as you don't, you know, fit certain disqualifications. And you can do so concealed. And you can do so without a license. That's the way I understand it as well. But I think I think constitutional carry still falls into categories for federal statutes. Okay. You still, I don't know if you can bring it over the state line limitation. I don't know about. There's probably there's got to be federal laws or limits that are going to be incorporated by reference. But that's where it gets really complicated, and that's probably going to be for another episode because we don't know what's going to happen yet. We, yeah, we don't know. We don't know the complications that's going to... <laughs> right. And, and, well, that's part of why we have this, this bulletin from our Miami-Dade Police Department is it kind of talks about, uh, you know, enforcement going forward, right? Right. I think it's, I don't think it's quite a standard operating procedure. I think, I think maybe it's the hypothesis that how they're going to field questions from their field agents or field officers and what to do. So it's not quite an SOP or a directive, but it's at least enlightening so that... We know there's a method to the madness that they're going to be employing. Yeah. So when I was reading it, um, disqualifications, right? So can't be a felon under Florida or federal law. Uh, If you're convicted of a felony in another state that was punishable by prison uh, for a term exceeding one year, these are the things that are going to disqualify an individual from mm-hmm. lawful carry. Because uh, right now, what's the law? I mean, we're going to constitutional law, but we have concealed carry. Yeah, essentially, you can do the same thing, but you can do it without a license. Right. So you can, you know, have your gun, put it on your belt, put your cert over it, and then not have to have the license to do so. I think you're allowed to sling a long rifle over your shoulder, too, with this. And walk around with it, if I read that correctly. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure, and I haven't gotten in any considerable depth with the legislative intent on stuff, but I, I 
I don't see an exclusion from that ability. I'm not sure that that exclusion exists at the time, but besides being the awkward guy with an AR-15 strapped <laughs> over here that no one's going to want to talk to, I mean, that might be a thing now. All right, so what else we got here? We've got uh, if under the age of 24 and committed a delinquent act in another state, there would have been a felony. We've got, uh, this is an interesting one. So chronically or habitually abuses alcohol or other substances. Hard stop period. A presumption exists that an individual chronically abuses alcohol or other substances if within the prior three years and, and then there's a couple of options, this is the individual has been convicted of two or more DUI offenses and the most recent conviction occurred within three years of the first DUI conviction and this person would remain ineligible to carry a concealed weapon for three years from the date of the most recent conviction. Uh, the individual has been convicted of using a firearm while under the influence of alcohol or controlled substances, or the individual has been convicted of disorderly intoxication three times within a 12-month period. And then it looks as though the last one is if you've been found incompetent to proceed in a court. Unfortunately, it's not it's not written incompetent to proceed like under Rule three two ten. It's it's got a different structure to the language. I think it's deemed incompetent. Or no, pardon me, not deemed incompetent. It's it's mentally disabled. Yeah, something like that. Which I'm not. I'm sure there's more probably mental health law that might expand on that. But it's kind of an odd integration for reference by uh, incorporation. Yeah. So a couple more it says uh, is prohibited from purchasing or possessing a firearm under Florida or federal law. And then had an adjudication of guilt withheld, suspended sentence, or completed probation within the last three years. All the smoke is been over here. Uh, it's right there, man. Oh, it's next to me. And it says uh, a felony, any misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, or a misdemeanor crime of violence such as battery. So it's not only domestic violence battery, it's actually battery as well. Right, so why would it be redundant? Obviously domestic violence falls into well, people any of those violent well, categories. Yeah, maybe maybe domestic assault. Violence, you're not allowed to get the license, right? That's one of the restrictions right now. Right. But, but I didn't think it if you're just gonna currently say violent, extended to battery. I, thought, I think that's new. Battery is a violent offense. It it's is. inherently violent. It is. So, like, why would they have a domestic violence, which can only be, like, one of three things, or a combination of the three things, and then also battery? Like, obviously, any misdemeanor that domestic, domestic violence primarily falls into those, for some reason, because Florida only thinks that people who are victims of domestic violence are only worth <laughs> so much in the realm of what individuals should be compelled to not bat- batter them. Right, and then also, like, when it's just talking about something that's a violent crime and or battery, right? Are, are we are we including anything that has, you know, battery as a lesser included as a violent crime now? Like, if you go to trial... What's a lesser than simple battery? No, 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 like, a battery is the lesser. So, like, you go to trial and you look at the jury instructions, and, you know, under your lesser included crimes that you could be convicted of, if you're able to convince the jury that you're not guilty of, like, you know, whatever it is, aggravated battery or something, you can still be convicted of battery even though you're not charged with it. 
because they just don't find the aggravating circumstance, so it's mm-hmm. an inconsistent verdict. Right. Um, it makes sense. Yeah. How you're, how you're describing that. But yeah, and then the thing of it that I think is interesting is going to be enforcement. So, like, the enforcement part, I know we were discussing this yesterday. Uh, like, how exactly is enforcement going to work? I saw several adjectives come to mind. Unfortunately, they're all <laughs> negative, <laughs> almost comical. Not to say that it can't be enforced, but it's definitely going to have, you know, almost arbitrary, um, and, uh, I dare to say, discriminatory applications depending on the environment, you know, just this, the pat, uh, the frisk concept where you have to have reason to believe that an individual is armed and dangerous. Under this law, I think there was a, a blurb in the, the item that was sent by Miami-Dade that you don't, they don't have to identify themselves. Right. You don't have to identify your, your uh, the fact that you have a gun on you if asked by law enforcement. So, okay, now, now what kind of unworkable juxtaposition does that place an individual in? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. Let's say you're a cop, right? And you come up on somebody. At what point in time can you start questioning them? Like, do you have to find out that they have the firearm? At this point in time, if you find out they have a concealed firearm after June 1st, I mean, that seems like legal activity. That's legal activity, right? They don't even have to disclose it according to that. Right. But if they do disclose it, or let's say they see the bulge, right? Sure. And they say, hey, what's that? I mean, they're allowed to find out things for officer safety. They ask you, do you have a knife or a gun on you? They ask it all the time. And you say, yes, I have this gun. I mean, at this point, that's legal activity. So does it stop there? Or do they have the ability to question further to find out if you like qualify, fit one of these disqualifications? Well, this is, this is what, I would, what I would call like the counterfeit nature of this type of legislation. Because it's going to operate in two different ways, in my opinion. I think that it's going to, first off, give them grounds to continue what shouldn't even be considered a consensual encounter. um, Because you don't have the option to terminate at that point. So all of a sudden, they're using just legal things to now elevate an encounter to a detention under Terry. Mm -hmm. And now you can't leave. You said everything was legal. And yet you're not going to be able to leave because the way it's written, it does seem that it's going to allow them to use legally permissible things without any hint of illegal activity that has been committed, will be committed, or is about to be committed um, to warrant the detention. So what what position is the officer in now? Now he has to... Does he have to let you carry the gun? Right, does he have to walk away? Does she have to walk away? Or do they have to now use, you know, their cunning to figure out how to get, hey, you don't mind if you stand here for a little bit as I investigate you, do you? Right. <laughs> like the, the, the switch on the consent? The well, I, switch. I think it also depends on the circumstances in which they come upon that person. I mean, if it's a traffic stop, right? Like, there's a traffic mission. So you're supposed to be doing the traffic mission. If you're, you know, a, a police officer and you come up on somebody for a traffic stop and you ask them if they have a weapon, you know, you may take them out of the vehicle, take the weapon away from them, and then go follow through with the traffic mission, possibly wait for another officer to get there for safety purposes, right, while you go and do the ticket or whatever it is, and that would be permissible. Um, But do they have the ability to inquire further, right? Like, okay, you have the firearm. Well, are you a felon? Or, you know, are you 
Uh, have you ever been deemed incompetent? You know, like, are those questions that they can ask you? Or is that a further, you know, sort of search? You know, are we getting into a Fourth Amendment search and seizure territory where you know, you're essentially instigating an investigation into the, you know, the firearm and, and your possession of it, and whether it's legal, <clears throat> questioning you about it. And that question can only be based on, it can even be based on, rather, things that you have said all in line with your legal stances. You're, you're not unlawful then. Yeah, no, and they're, you're, they're going to keep you for legal, having reasonable suspicion based on legal and legally unlawful answers. Yeah, yeah, you're. <laughs> I feel bad for a cop who's going to be in this position almost. And you're imputing, possibly imputing illegal activity into legal activity. Because now it's so confusing that now the cops have to have an argument with a guy with a gun. Right, which is. Super, and nobody knows who's right. And super cool place to be. Yeah, they're going to love that. They're really going to appreciate the legislature mm-hmm. you know, putting them in that position. Because I'm not even sure you have arguable, reasonable suspicion on that. Well, and then the other part is, you know, if you've got an officer who's now in a more dangerous situation, like, what are the repercussions from societal point that are going to come from that? You know, like, how many unlawful killings are going to come from this, or unlawful shootings, or how many officers are going to be possibly attacked that wouldn't have been attacked before? I, I, obviously, a, that's not an answer that be, you have or will have. Like we don't know, but it's almost going to. It almost bends the mind about what exigent circumstances are created by the police that they're not going to be able to rely on for furtherance of the encounter. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're the guy. You have no reason to think he's doing this illegally or she's doing this illegally. Yet you're elevated. You've taken the weapon, or you're attempting to take the weapon, or you have two people there. One person you've taken the weapon from. The other one's like, okay, now I have a problem with this. Right. Oh wait, look, I'm armed. Yeah. Oh wow. So it sucks and it's a reality. But we're gonna see this on the news. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure it's going to have a little bit of a, a punch up from whoever the PR is. But I think once people, you know, who listen to what's the name of the podcast, Council Stable? Yes. What they're gonna see this council stable. What they're gonna see in narratives that are written by the police is that this isn't as cut and dry as a disagreement for, you know, a resisting with violence or a resisting without violence, it's going to be the body cam doesn't line up with the narrative. Right. That encounter didn't happen that way. But I thought more gums meant more safe. <laughs> You're going to leave that one there. <laughs> Let's let that float. Let's let that float into the irony. Yeah. No, man, more gums, more safe. That's we're, we're, it's good. I don't see how law enforcement would would back this up. It doesn't make sense to me that law enforcement wants it. I know that something similar happened in, I want to say, Georgia, and the Atlanta Police Department came out and was like, you're out of your minds. This is awful. Yeah. I know cops, in at least in that metro area, were less enthused about the reality here. So, <coughs> I suppose it's to be seen still. So. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think that you and I had spoken about was, so say that say that there is a, a weapon now is the cop going to they obviously have to note that there was a weapon the weapon was dispossessed or pardon me the, the person was dispossessed of the weapon mm-hmm. well what was that weapon it was this type of weapon and here's a serial number so now it's not really constitutional carry because now the government's going to have records of whose weapon that is so from an investigator, investigatory FDLE statistical numerical 
uh, and data-driven point. Really good crime data. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You, it doesn't become a ghost gun. It could become a ghost gun, but they can track it somehow, maybe. Um, but now, there's no way there's not going to be a report for a gun that was temporarily confiscated, but returned under this premise. Oh, absolutely. So the legislature's like, more gun, more safe, but now we're going to know who gun who is. Well, in that circumstance, I would think that would go along with safe, right? Like, as a society, as a defense attorney, obviously we hate this, but as a society, um, you know, knowing who has what firearm or who should have what firearm or who has had what firearm in the past, I, I would think that that would be useful. Thank you for listening to the first 20 minutes of this lawcast. I want to thank you for listening, like I stated, and I also want to thank you for going on ahead and liking and subscribing to the channel on YouTube or, you know, just generally liking the content on whatever platform you are listening to this. Uh, we've got about 30 more minutes to go on episode one with Mr. Clark. Once again, thank you, like, and subscribe. The typical personality of the legislature over the last few years, that's as I, as I call it, piss on your head and tell you it's freedom. Well, I think this is political. It is political. but It's not just it's, the legislature. I mean, this is... But they're making up freedoms to make you think that you have freedom, you know, freedoms, new freedoms, and they're protecting your freedoms, and this is just something you've always had. Right. And they call it freedom reign. I mean, it seems as though a lot of the, um, the disqualifications really are disqualifications that would have prevented you from having the license to begin with. So essentially what they've done is you're not allowed to have it if you're not allowed to have it. But if you were allowed to have it, you just don't have to get this license anymore. You're not wrong. Right? Like I can't I can't think of a counter that would make any logical sense to them being able to say in a commercial every two years or however long their terms are, I made you safer. When in all actuality, there's gonna be a lot more people in the hospital, in the ground, because of stray bullets, because guns get taken from cars that get stolen, because people don't pay attention to their guns correctly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to be a statistical nightmare to try to categorize and, and, and count how many of these things happen, and, you know, who knows the exponential cost it's going to have, because they're just uncalculable, untrackable even. We'll see. Right. And I think that we end up with a situation where you know there are just less responsible gun owners as well because I mean in order to get that license you have to at least take like a basic safety class right? So I think, we've, yeah. we've gotten rid of like the basic safety class as well that's weird That's it's weird to me 16 year olds get a license to drive a vehicle maybe it's 15 in Florida I think it's 15 well it's the learner's permit it's 15 alright the permit either way you start this like you know other states have different ages but it's either 15 or 16 typically and you don't even have it have and that's there's a proficiency element to that they, right. they, you know they make you take the tests this doesn't even have a proficiency element you know and someone asked me a colleague of mine asked me like oh why don't you why don't you carry you know it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it and I said if I if I'm in a situation where I have to be shooting no one's safer because Rob's also shooting right like I'm not helping the situation guaranteed I'm probably making it worse and I can't imagine that 90% of the people 
total would make any situation better because they're also throwing bullets. Right. Well, we don't even got like a, a crossfire situation. Right. Who's the good guy? Nobody knows who the good guy is by that point. You, have you seen 127 bullets? You know what I'm talking about? No. No, there's a documentary on Netflix. Uh, it's called 127 bullets, and I believe it's out of Cleveland. And um, if it's not from Cleveland, I apologize, Cleveland, but I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> you know, sorry, Cleveland. But anyway, so some guy goes on a chase uh, with a car that's you know, stolen or bad played or whatever it is, and you just see these traffic cameras of all these cars, all the police cars following them in a massive amount. There's like 30, 40, 50 cars. And eventually this car finally stops and they surround it. They encircle it and they all get out and they start firing at it. Well, the problem is that because there's a, one person fires, like cops on the other side see the muzzle, they think it's the guy in the car and they all just volley into the car. Right. So they all start firing. So they're getting shot at. And they're like, all shooting they each other sh- in their own crossfire. Right, and they also won't stop shooting because they see shots coming, right? So it's just mass chaos. And, yeah. It's not good if we're in, say, Walmart and 100 people in there, you know, have a gun on them and they start firing at each other. Like, who are we firing at anymore? Do you even know? That That is... That's the reality behind it. And I don't know where... Hopefully, you know, as defenders, we don't have to encounter that. Oh, it's coming. But the reality is that there's going to be situations where is there liability attached to someone? Is there criminal? Is it criminally negligent to do something like that? Maybe you know, under the stand your ground statute. Oh well, I was also shooting because this guy was shooting. Well, who are you shooting? Who are you shooting at? Who are you defending him from? Right. Oh, that guy. Well, that guy was shooting at the bad guy. Right. You weren't even shooting at the bad guy. You were shooting at the other good guy. So is nobody criminally liable anymore because everybody was standing their ground while they're no, all, this is Florida. Everyone's while criminally liable. at each other. <laughs> this is Florida. Everyone goes to jail. Right. And they're just going to pray there's a couple of people who can figure it out. Until then, they can lose their house and their family can be homeless <laughs> because no, they sure wanted we'll, to use their constitutional carry. I'm sure we'll hear more about this in the future. Uh, last thing on constitutional carry. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, I know that you may not have encountered this, but I, when this came out, you know, we're in court resolving cases, and you know, I've been able to use this to negotiate cases down, even. Like, somebody has a carry concealed firearm charge coming at them, and here we are two months from their actions being legal because they don't have any prior felonies or any of those disqualifications. They just were young and dumb and arrested with a firearm that was in their car or under their, their waist belt or whatever and they didn't have the license right um, you know with this even though it's not actually enforced yet uh, we've been able to kind of get lessers like a, like an improper exhibition of a weapon or something just to, to get them off the felony level I mean obviously we can't get it dismissed because it's still technically a crime but in the like argument of fairness and you know whatnot been able to use it to negotiate so that's been useful spirit of the law as is yeah or you work for you know the state of florida you're the state attorney ron DeSantis is your boss and he is you know the executor uh the state attorney works for him so your boss is telling me that this is no longer going to be illegal and you just don't want to you know prosecute somebody for it that seems wrong wow hasn't he suspended uh didn't he suspend the the 
state attorney from Hillsborough County for disagreeing with him? Yeah, I wasn't. I'm, I don't <laughs> practice in Hillsborough, so I don't know, but I've heard said thing, yes. I think his name was Warren. I don't remember, though. Was that, that, had to do with, that was during COVID, though. What was that about? It wasn't COVID. That was only a few months ago, and it was because he, he basically, if anyone has to get an abortion for legal mm. purposes, not legal purposes, but for purposes that are medical in nature, and it's beyond the, the scope that is permissible by the current leadership's definition of when a life starts or at least when viability or what arbitrary date they put on it. Right. Um, that he would not have his essays or ASAs pursue it. Right. And just for people that don't know, what's an essay or an ASA? Uh, in Florida, they call them state attorneys or assistant state attorneys. Right. Different, different states call them different places. I think the majority of states call them district attorneys and assistant district attorneys. And then state attorneys in many of those states are ones who work for the attorney general. Right. But they're essentially our prosecutor. Which is one of the many, yeah, it's just one of the many um, items of vocabulary that I <laughs> had to deal with coming to Florida. Right. Well, I remember uh, when I was in New York and I was law clerking, the, you know, you have district courts, right, which are essentially our, our circuit. Is that right? And then they have county courts, which we have as well. But I think the county courts there handle felony level cases. Counties are felony level, and then you have like municipal town courts. courts. Town, village, every town and village has a court, and very few don't. Do you have night court? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't miss night court. That was awful. Driving all over the state was. It's truly a bad experience. Now, did you ever work as a, a public defender while you were in New York? Sort of. I, I worked as a in law school. I worked for um, a public defender in upstate New York um, in Wayne County, which is near Rochester. And I did quite a bit of work up there. I had a practice order. And then I was also in the, the defense clinic with a practice order that was actually run by a practitioner um, in residence right out of Syracuse so that was in Onondaga County shout out to the defense clinic by the way I think it's gone I think the Syracuse defense clinic is gone yeah I think they I think they dissolved it there's a they, there's only a few clinics in there but Gary Peoples ended up taking it over and he managed it quite well I've heard but I think that I think they dissolved it wow I'd have to call and ask I don't remember anymore well if it's there then shout out if not shout out to the uh, defense clinic alumni I know you're out there I'm one as well you know, getting into a courtroom, handling low-level cases while you're in law school, and then when you've only got like three or four, you can actually be very thorough and do a good job. So, it was an interesting program. I think the community got a lot from it. And then, the other public work I did up there was uh, parole um, revocation for a legal aid society, um, which is. That's a crapshoot, for lack of a better way of describing that. Yeah, that is that is some tough work. It's basically it's basically as, as strict as a criminal trial with no rules of evidence and preponderance. <laughs> so explain the the situation that a person that would have used you there would find themselves in. Um, well, someone, how, how do they get to meeting uh, you know Robert Clark to help them with their their parole? Yeah, that's right. Because parole here is uh, essentially virtually non-existent. non-existent. Yeah. they have a parole board in which I don't really know what they do. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out why they have a parole board, but I, I think 
that they maybe only really still supervised persons that actually got parole when we still had it. That would make sense. Now, I know that when you're on prisoner release, um, you can violate your release. So it's still kind of like we have parole. Yeah, it's not dissimilar from the probation. It's it's probation plus. Um, so individuals would be released from incarceration for multiple years, usually for felonies or multiple felonies. And then they would have to go through some sort of reentry. And the parole officers were assigned to them. Um, they would give them uh, an incredibly strict, obviously an incredibly strict set of rules. And they would also release them to an individual who signed responsibilities for them, even though that individual is very rarely ever held accountable for anything that would happen for one reason or another. But, <coughs> sorry. Um, but what ended up happening was one way, shape, or form, they're not being removed from the environment, so they're falling into the same crowd, the same vendettas, the same anger, the same issues, and they're, you know, there's no way out for a lot of them in different circumstances. So, you know, meeting conditions was, was tough unto itself. Those were just technical violations. But every once in a while, you'd get new offenses charged. Um, so it would be anything from the technical violations, like, you know, was carrying a knife because he had to cut boxes open for the crap job that he had, but he had a knife on him. Okay. Right? To um, there's something called the Baby Jesus case. It was uh, someone who's on the sexual offender registry. Um, which is called Sora in New York. Uh, they violated him for having um, an image or on the calendar in December uh, from the church he was going to give him a calendar and it showed baby Jesus in a manger. And they violated him for having an image of a baby. An, um, an image of, of baby Jesus. Of baby Jesus, yeah. It's called the baby Jesus case. Does it, does it matter that he was scantily clad in the manger or just the fact I think that it was, it was fact, a baby? It was the fact that it was a child. At all? In, in an image was the rule okay. um i know that i know that i know the judge that dealt with that the administrative law judge that dealt with that and he ended up saying that's ridiculous and he tossed it but that's that was the level of um of scrutiny that parole officers were put on individuals in that position and not, i'm not saying they're not doing their jobs but it, it's just you they are at the total women caprice of the person who they were released to and then the individuals whose responsibility it is to manage them so to speak I mean that almost sounds like you know you got a mailer that came in like I don't know for kids to play soccer and you don't have kids but they sent it to everybody in the neighborhood and it's got like a picture of you know three or four young kids smiling with a soccer ball like what do you do do you throw it on the ground like don't take it in your house do you throw it in the trash do you have to burn it do yeah you call your parole officer and say I got a piece of mail like it's it seems very capricious it is yeah, it was. So that's that's what I would do. So they would get scooped up, but because it would be a deprivation of liberty, due process would require at least representation, do you know the hearing, things like that. Mm -hmm. well, because um, they're facing incarceration again. Yeah, yeah. And well, they're no, they're already they're already in by the time they have the hearing. Oh, they're reincarcerated. Oh yeah, they can they have they have it. <laughs> I say it with quotes because you know they can be out <laughs> while this pending is while this hearing is pending. But we all know that they're not. The reality was that. 
they would need counsel on it. And sometimes, sometimes you would be like, "Hey, they screwed up," or the per- individual would be like, "Hey, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention. I let that get away from me. I'm gonna ask. Sorry. Um, I'm gonna take responsibility for it." Right? Do you think they're gonna, you know, be okay with that? Well, they're not gonna be okay with it. They're not gonna, you know, um, reintroduce you yet. You know, revoke and restore is what that would be called. Right. Um, but, you know, instead of 18 months for a punishment back upstate, you're probably looking at, you know, six months. Right. I mean, the same similar situation as the violation of probation, right? Are you better off kind of owning it and you know, essentially doing the what I would call an open plea? You know, it, are Sometimes. you better off having the open plea than going to the hearing to fight something that, you you know, you can't? Like, if you've got a positive urine and you signed an admission, yeah, you're probably not going to a hearing. You're going to be, you know either negotiating that case out with the state or going to the court if you can't resolve it there and kind of asking them for leniency and explaining why. Sometimes that is the way. Sometimes the person who they were released to just is abusing their power and says, you know, oh, I found this in the in the house. I didn't bring it in the house. It must be theirs. The PO just comes and shows up, scoops them up. They're in jail. only person that you have to question is the individual who, whose house that they were released to. And, you know, they're like, I never even, it's, you know, there's a certain amount of candor that you can have in having a conversation with an individual and, you know, very, very certain ways where you're just like, oh, I do believe you have no idea, you had no idea. Why would you even know that was there? Now, what's the standard in that situation? So, for instance, like, <laughs> it's, it, it, you're, or, so, for instance, in Florida, you're at a violation of probation, uh, you know, hearing, right? And you got to prove that if the violation did occur, that it either wasn't willful or not substantial. Do you, do you know what the, do you uh, remember what the... Willful and meaningful, I think is what it was. I mean, that sounds... Meaningful violation. That level. sounds like the same thing, essentially. It's very, it's very close. Yeah. But those are incredibly broad terms. Because, you know, you willfully violate a technical. If, by, by definition, the technical is, it must be less than you know, a new offense, yet <laughs> the punishments are very rarely ever <laughs> yeah, discerning. Yeah. So after doing the uh, parole violations, that was the last job that you had in New York, right? Uh, before moving down to Florida? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so you moved to Florida... Uh, retook the bar. <laughs> Took the Florida bar. Yeah. Yeah. And how was that? That's as much as much fun as you can imagine. Yeah. Just fantastic. I recommend everyone do it. Now you um, <laughs> <laughs> you had to study up on some of the Florida stuff, right? Like the the, the homestead exemptions and things like that. Yeah, Florida's got a couple of unique applications. What's what? Which is super difficult, not only to learn basically. Um, you know, if you're studying just for the bar for the first time, but having to reprogram yourself from your New York vernacular mm-hmm. your, and your New York phraseology <laughs> into another one, right? So, you know, we didn't have homes yet, so that wasn't necessarily a difficult thing to learn and store because I didn't have to forget or remind myself, no, that's not. I'm thinking of the New York way of saying this. You have to think of the Florida way of saying this. I didn't have to do that for that. And there's a bunch of stuff that you had to learn for Florida specifically, but. Um, now, did you actually get questioned on, you know, the homestead exemption? Like, I think it was like two questions on the MBA. 
<laughs> it came the, down, you know, the multiple choice. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm and I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure that it's was it was an actual question. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you know, actually, I think we we skipped over something. So you did work for a firm for a while in the Syracuse area, right? I did. I worked for. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into. The, the name, the name of but, but you, you work for a place that you know, sort of focuses on DUIs, is that right? That is all we did. I mean, we took crime generally, um, crime defense, but DUI, uh, DWIs up there is what they're called. Okay. DWIs, driving while intoxicated. Um, and driving while intoxicated drugs were the main focus of that firm. So, you know, I had about 400, 500 just doing representation there that now when you're doing that for a private firm I mean how much traveling are you doing well earlier you spoke about night courts yeah and you have to go to the courts so the responsibilities of the younger attorneys are basically you're putting miles in um, so you know I was located centrally in Onondaga County but I would have people from Binghamton Rochester Utica um Fortunately, the three of those in the same day, unlikely. Same week, usually. <laughs> it yeah. was tough. It was a tough. It was a tough sell. So putting a lot of miles in, seeing a lot of new judges. I yeah, I can I can affirmatively say, it's kind of a weird flex when someone asks me about oh well, how many judges have you, has this worked in front of or how many judges have you said that to and I'm like oh probably about 150 yeah <laughs> 200 maybe yeah <laughs> and they look at me weird, but. Well, especially in the job we're in now, where you know we see the same judge all the time. Uh, yeah, I've been in front of one judge since since coming here, yeah. and we just expanded to a second judge. Um, so I think I'm going to be appearing in front of him as well. But it is, <laughs> it's a it's a big difference, <laughs> to say the least. Now, um, your experience in town court. For those that don't know, in New York. Uh, when you're a judge at a certain level of court, you don't really be, even need to be an attorney. I mean, you don't need to be a college graduate, right? Uh, this is 100% true. The way that they made the system hundreds of years ago was that the community needed to have input. And the only way that they could guarantee that was by um, requiring the local magistrate to be elected locally. Okay. So there's, there's, a, there's a certain amount of prudence to it. Because I think in New York, people were disappearing when the British were doing it without that. So they, they <laughs> I think they specifically made it this way. Um, but the, the downside is you get elected, you can put your neighbor in jail for a year. Not, yeah. that, not that you would, but there's got to be a nefarious individual out there who's probably done something like that. Well, I mean, there's horror stories that come from that area. Sure. Uh, I'm thinking of one specifically. I think it was Watertown, maybe, in that area. Um a judge was allowing people to determine what their sentences were with a, a dartboard. You heard that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, I have heard this. Yeah. I did hear about this. Okay, well, you, you can have this or you can throw the dart. Your choice, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there were some odd practices. They have guidelines and there's a, a certain amount of strictness that comes with it. There was there was one court in Shenango County where it had two judges and a lot, of, a lot of magistrates have another judge. However, when they're both on the bench at the same time, it's like facing a hot bench, and, and, and you don't know what to do because the record is destroyed at that point. Because so they're, they're both questioning you they're, at the same time? They're both inquiring, 
And then just for fun, they'll ask the, the defendant a question. You're like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, then the question comes, comes, do they even know what they're doing? So that's the other thing. Like you just said, they don't even have to have any education, basically. Um, there are a few judges, and I don't think that that's necessarily indicative of being bad or good at your job. It's just knowing the rules. But there are downsides to an individual who um, is faced with a dilemma of, hey, we want to go to trial, and the judge looks at you and goes, no. You know, oh, the, the 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 arbitrator is saying no. Oh, this is a problem. Yeah. Well, what do you mean no? Oh, you don't know how to conduct a trial. Also, this courthouse is a barn. Yeah. Are we going to get folding chairs for the jury? Where are they going to come from? There were ones that um, were basically... So in New York, uh, the departments of transportation have to have structures to house snowplows for when they're not using snowplows. Right. And um, during the year, they pull a plow out for a truck that has a plow out, and they set up a desk, and there's your court. Wow. And I've, I've been to about three or four of them. And you show up, and you're like, am I, this is a courthouse? Nope. Nope, it's a garage. And they pulled that truck out, and they set up some folding chairs. Wow. Yep. <clears throat> and meanwhile, you're showing up in a suit. Yeah, everybody tries to show up looking professional. You can't not show up in a suit. <laughs> can't show up in a Jets jersey. I try not to wear my Jets jerseys anywhere, but yeah, I don't want anybody knowing that that character flaw. <laughs> nah, man, you guys are gonna win it this year. You got Aaron Rodgers. It's all over. It's already done. You already won. <laughs> I think we were mathematically eliminated though about three three quarters through the draft. <laughs> That's how you know a true Jets fan. They know that they've lost before we got there. I don't know, man. There's a lot of them out there. they got a lot of belief right now. Aaron Rodgers is going to save them. Man, man, we, we believe every year. We believe next year's our year, and we just keep saying it. I'm familiar with that pain. <laughs> as, a, you know, as a Dolphins fan, I, I feel that pain. Yeah, I, I, I'm a Jets fan my whole life, and I finally moved to Florida, and my, the man we created, the monster the Jets created, moves here to Tampa. Oh, you got the Tom Brady experience face to face. Yeah, yeah. I had to and then I, and deal then, with the commercials. Yeah, my whole family down here. Oh, we're doing so bad. We're down by a touchdown or two. Oh, there's only two minutes. And I'm just sitting there going, "You have Tom Brady. Knock it off. Right. He's gonna march this ball down the field. He's gonna get seven right off the bat, and then he's gonna somehow figure out how to get the ball back with 40 seconds on the clock. And oh, look at that. He puts it in field goal range." Imagine that. Just throw it to Mike Evans. <laughs> we were just, I just, we were just, like my stepfather and I are both huge Jet, Jets fans. And we were watching, and everyone's like, oh, no, the Jets are going to do it. No, the Jets were playing Tampa Bay that year. And they're like, oh, the Jets are going to beat Tampa Bay. And we're both sitting there, we're like, give it a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Jets aren't going to win. Give it a minute. You guys don't know. How do you know the Jets aren't going to win? Oh, because I'm a Jets fan. There's ways. <laughs> I'm a Jets fan, and that's Tom Brady. The Jets lost before they arrived on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> oh, no, It's no. actually might be the best part of the content. Oh, no, no. Everybody's going to know about your Jets fandom. It's coming. Um, just end the so, season. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they're just going to keep playing. They're, they're not going anywhere. Um... All right, so something interesting about 
DWIs in New York is you guys actually have a lesser included that's a traffic ticket, right? Right, so it's a violation of the offense, which is called a DWAI. It's a driving while ability impaired. Okay. It's a catch-all, and it is very useful for DWI representation because it's not a DWI on your record. You don't have the same issues. However, you are going to have similar consequences, but it's not going to be a crime on your record. Wow. Which is a big thing. Florida doesn't have an equivalent. Um, no, we, we do something they call wet reckless, or, you know, if you really have a terrible DUI, you can maybe sometimes convince them to do a, a dry reckless. So the wet reckless is a concept. We don't have a wet reckless in the same way It's Florida not called wet reckless, does, it's a reckless driving. You can get someone to a reckless. Well, Florida has a wet reckless in the sense that, I want to say it's like 192-5 or 190.192 sub 5, and they can make, a judge can make an individual who they believe this was a reduction from a DUI to this reckless, and they can make it the wet reckless by requiring all the, what I call fixings. Yeah, the DUI conditions. Yeah. The DUI minimums. Right. Um, but in New York, there's a, that reduction to the DWAI comes with certain things. You have to participate in the victim impact panel. Um, what they have there is called the, the um, drive, driving improvement course. Okay. Uh, 90 day suspension a little bit of a different concept from the revocation you have to do DUI school? that's DUI school DUI driver improvement course okay um, but typically clients once they were enlightened to that option were willing to accept that option limit the exposure and liability and go forward with that in order to avoid the risks of what's typically associated with any first degree misdemeanor. In New York, they're called, All day. It's called undefi um, undefined. It's, it's a, a U-class. Um, you have first degree, second degree, or A and B, mm -hmm. and then a U. Um, so a U is really just an A, but um, it can be a little bit more expansive on the, uh, on the consequences. Now, since you've come to Florida, you've uh, you had to deal with some DUIs, correct? I've, yeah, I've managed to collect quite a few. <laughs> Not me personally, but representing individuals who are faced with it. Oh, you mean you don't just recklessly run around town intoxicated on alcohol and drive your vehicle? No, no, I, uh, I'm able to avoid that. That's smart. It's smart. Yeah. I, I, you know, for those listening, I wouldn't suggest it. It's not smart. Get an Uber. It's way cheaper. <clears throat> so, as far as, I don't know, say like, the proof that would become necessary at, say, a trial. Are there any differences there? So the proof is actually going to be provided nationwide um, from something called NHTSA. It's the National Highway Traffic, Traffic Safety, Safety Administration. Administration. And they produce um, the programming for cops to become certified in field sobriety testing, alcohol recognition. There's another one called a ride or a ride. Um, and there's even a third called the DRE program, which is designed to help officers with DUA, DUI drugs or DWAI drugs. Um, yeah, they're drug recognition problems. experts. I, I, yeah, experts is... 
I don't. I know call what them the examiners. Yeah, I call sure. them examiners. Examiners, drug recognition examiners. Yeah, they want to say experts, but if you say if you put expert up there, oh, you've got you got twenty hours to become an expert on this. All right, let's talk about that right, right. now. I could probably fill an entire afternoon of that judge's calendar just talking about expert. Yeah, and then uh, you know the field sobriety tests—they're not you know technically tests because they don't actually. They don't call them tests here, right? Yeah, they call them exercises. exercises. Yeah. I, I prefer FSEs. them to call tests, but um, here they've done a good job of keeping it as exercises. And they've even found that HGN in this state, which is the thing with the pen in front of the eyes, um, is scientific in nature. So DREs are allowed to testify about it because mm-hmm. they understand the science. Supposedly. I'm saying understand in quotes. Um, in, in varying levels, depending on the person. Right. Um, I, would even, I would even say the best trained DRE doesn't actually understand the difference between the different types of HDN and eye issues that you could have. They can't exclude anything. They don't know what they're excluding. They don't know what they don't know. Right. Which is, it's a medical test. It's a scientific medical test. So if they are not trained in knowing how to exclude something, they actually can't make a affirmative conclusion on anything. So a good toxicologist expert um, would be able to say, no, what you're, you're not looking at that. You're looking at this. You've just been told what to say. So you're just being a parrot. You're being a parrot about what you think you saw and then you're just convincing people in a jury box because you've got a shiny badge on right which is also why we don't allow people to testify about hgn you know officers regular officers that are field sobriety exercise trained that do hgn but you know may be able to use it for probable cause to get you arrested and you know yeah have your first appearance in bail hearing but aren't able to actually come into court and testify about it at a trial i got asked by a supervisor late uh, recently like what I would do in a situation he was discussing HGN because the body cams most most officers in this state have body cams I think troopers may not but I think I think most locals do um, the real issue comes in is that body cams don't have an expansive field of view right they're low they're they're, they the are low so you'd be able to see maybe the hand that holds the pen but you can't see the eyes and the the imagery on a, on a body cam is not poor but it's not good enough to see what the officers alleging he's seeing, which is a slight shaking of the eyes, yeah, which happens if you're tired, or if you if there's a light behind the, the officer, your eyes will naturally flick to the light, because you know that's how eyes work. Right. So um, there's a bunch of different things that go into that. But you know, he was asking, what would you do in that? I would say I would probably find the camera of the. I would ask for the camera from the, the body cam of the other officer. Because we're not going. There's no point in arguing something you can't even see. Right. The officer's always going to be able to say what he saw, and there's nothing you can do. Um, however, the other parts of the HGN are just as important. It's the orbital sway. It's different sways. It's whether or not they were holding the pen in the right position, distance, speed wise. If it's done in anything less than 82 seconds, they have done it wrong. Standardized means done the same every single time. So you may not be able to re-examine the person but you can examine the examiner right but when you so when you get the body cam or the dash cam that can see him doing it and you're like dude you're holding that pen a foot and a half too far from him right like you're three feet from this guy what are you doing or they're holding the pen <laughs> they're holding i've seen i saw the other one the other day he's basically within three inches of the guy's eyes he's going cross-eyed and it's like oh his eyes were his eyes were twitching wow that's amazing right <laughs> that concludes episode one of council's table with Mr. Robert Clark and myself, your host, Spencer O'Neill. Uh, thank you, and check out episode two. We're going to finish up our conversation with Mr. Clark. We've got about an hour. And once again, like and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Council's Table.